0: Now it's time for the Southern Cross. Welcome back to Southern Cross. With me today is Pacific Media Centre Director Professor David Roby. And 30 years ago, uh, he was an environmental journalist on board the Rambo Warrior, which was the Greenpeace flagship that was bombed by French secret agents on the 10th of July in 1985. So he was on board for almost 11 weeks and joined the Greenpeace campaigners in the Marshall Islands to rescue the Rongelap Islanders from the legacy of US nuclear tests. He wrote a book about this last voyage, Eyes of Fire, which has been published in several countries. And today he will share some of his reflections. And also discuss the latest happenings around the Pacific. So, why don't you begin by telling me how you came about to be on board uh, the ship?
1: Well, in those days I was um, a freelance uh, journalist um, and specialising in uh, environmental issues around the Pacific and uh, when the uh, Rainbow Warrior, that was the first, like it was fitted out especially as a sailing vessel, although it had been a fishing uh, uh, trawler prior to that, it was fitted out in Jacksonville, Florida, um, for, uh, for this massive voyage around the Pacific to mm. really highlight uh, nuclear testing and so on. And Greenpeace in those days was just a tiny little organisation that, Greenpeace New Zealand, you Mm -hmm. know, they were in Nagel House and uh, there's only a handful of uh, volunteers working and Elan Shaw was the coordinator at that time and she said, oh look, we really need to have a New Zealand journal, I, you know, someone from the New Zealand, Pacific, uh, Australia Southern Hemisphere, perspective on what's happening, and there were about six journos um, on board but I was the only one that actually came f- came from uh, this mm. part of the world, and I was freelance, I wrote a, a weekly column for the uh, Herald, and I had um, outlets in the media right across the uh, region, mm. but it was a tremendous challenge.
0: Yeah, how, how did you find this experience in terms of you personally?
1: Oh, well, I think it's the most moving Experience uh, and most emotional experience I've ever had as a, as a journalist. Uh, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, because of the bombing and so on, was this was very much overshadowed in New Zealand. So very much the media concentrated on the dastardly uh, act of the uh, French uh, state terrorists, uh, sort of bombing mm. the ship right here in front of our noses in the Auckland Harbour. But I, I was on board for that voyage to the Marshall Islands and the Rongelap Islanders. Uh, mm. We, we ferried. Um, the entire community um, you know Pacific Islanders uh, their the whole being, their existence is tied up with their identity with their land and so for this whole community to decide that they were going to leave Rongolap Atoll was quite extraordinary in itself but they, they had a legacy of being uh, dusted by radioactive fallout mm-hmm. um, from 1954 uh, from the US uh, tests and ever since then they'd had um, uh, problems with thyroid cancers and a whole seri- a legacy of you know illnesses and that sort of thing so they made the decision that they were going to leave um, their atoll and they got a, another island off Kwajalein Atoll that they could migrate to uh, where nobody was living there mm-hmm. um, and they needed someone to to help them and so um, they got talking to Greenpeace and mm-hmm. uh, it was coinciding with the uh, Pacific uh, voyage um, so Greenpeace said okay okay we'll, we'll help help you but it was a tremendously emotional moving mm-hmm. experience for all of us because because, um, you know, arriving on this island and realising they still had meetings, although they'd decided they had to have further meetings, the people, mm. um, and then they dismantled their whole village, and uh, mm. the only thing left that was standing was the church. Mm. Uh, everything else was sort of um, dis- you know, uh, sort of taken apart, packaged up, and then ferried out to the Rainbow Warrior, and it took us uh, four voyages to go to Majato, mm. and nothing was there in Majato, and it was, it was sort of nothing like, oh, I'd describe rongolap as like a paradise in, the, in mm-hmm. the pacific and manjata was was a nice island but it didn't have didn't have the same water supplies or um a lot of the established facilities the gardens that they would established over years and that sort of thing so it was a pretty a pretty challenging sort uh, of have, uh, was exercise. there any yeah.
0: uh, support given to the marshall islanders or i mean i mean that sounds like a I i had no idea but I, it's a huge thing to f- basically force a bunch of people to move from their home so uh I guess this was the US testing nuclear in the region. Am I correct? And, That's yeah. right. It's so the US it was, test. Yeah, yes. so so have there been any um I mean, retribution from that. Well,
1: well, I mean, compensation—that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's taken years and years uh, to battle and battle against uh, the U.S. And gradually, over time, there have there have been grants, there have been uh, sort of packages of uh, compensation. But of course, nowhere near the um, diabolical um, tests that sort of went mm-hmm. on atolls like Bikini and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bikini and Eniwetok—they're uh, the two main ones, of course. Um, but uh, the compensation was never really. Um, going to help help people that much and so they were in this situation the wronged islanders to where do they go and what do they what happened um, subsequently to that I have to say that um, some of the people eventually later many many years later they when uh, more co- some compensation did come from the US mm-hmm. government they were able to go back to their island and they got a little airstrip because prior to that they, even in spite of all these medical needs there was no airstrip there was no you know it took a like sort of um, ages to to travel between the capital majuro to um, to rongolap so people did go back uh, many years later but um, we've, we, I guess, we all felt um, those on on board that uh, it was a really humanitarian um, and a sort of uh, expedition, and it's the first time Greenpeace had done anything like this. You no, know, because mostly environmental campaigns uh, deal with uh, the environment, and, mm-hmm. you know issues and that sort of thing. But this was actually a campaign about the victims of nuclear yeah. tests. And, and I
0: feel like so often, I mean, people people are connected to the land. Like you can't you can't recognize environmental concerns without looking at often people who are really strongly affected. Well, like yeah.
1: just the uh, climate change uh, uh, refugees mm-hmm. and so on that have come from uh, islands off uh, in, in northern part of Papua New, New Guinea, Papua yeah. New Guinea uh, have had to go to um, Bougainville, uh, for example, and they're give, they allocated land. But it's not the same. It's not mm-hmm. the same. It's not their traditions and their history and mm-hmm. their um, you know, ancestors are not there. And so on. So it's very hard uh, for people, uh, say from New Zealand, you know, to really comprehend the the scale of that um, yeah. you know, challenge, really.
0: And I guess, yeah, moving forward, I mean, as concerns about climate change grow, I think this this question about climate change refugees is only going to to increase.
1: Absolutely, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a major policy that we need to really come to grips with mm-hmm. now uh, to prepare for the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, five years ago, marking the thirtieth anniversary, you did a project with some forty students. And so, what what did what did they do, and kind of what did you guys learn from it?
1: Well, I think one of the best ways to learn journalism is, you know, is by doing it on big scales, projects uh, where, which more or less simulates what actually happens in a media organisation, rather than um, individual little um, projects that um, they're, they're good for preparing the sort of um, practice and that sort of thing. Um, but we've done a number of really um, uh, quite tremendous projects that. At AUT. but this one, this one was to mark the 30th anniversary of the Rainbow Warrior bombing. We um, we got together two lots of students. Uh, there was the, the journalism students were given assignments of uh, preparing a small news story of about two and a half minutes or so mm-hmm. on a range of uh, topics. We gave them some um, you know sort of uh, suggestions to start off with. But uh, basically, uh, uh, there are two people crews, um, and uh, one one is a producer and one uh, the reporter, mm-hmm. uh, and they were to pick their topics and uh, go out and do their research and uh, do the story. Um, then we also had another team of radio uh, students and their their task was to do a series of uh, set interviews uh, in the studio and set the studio up and they were about, mm. roughly about 20 minute interviews. That's so it's extraordinary sort of archive, yeah. oral history really because mm. a lot of the people that they interviewed were at the time of the Rainbow Warrior bombing uh, different roles either with Greenpeace or people investigating Whatever, um, and so those are all oral histories because you know people are passing mm, on mm. and uh, no longer there. Yeah,
0: because um, um, of timing, we'll, we'll move on to the second uh, thing to talk about. If that's all right today, I um, just wanted to make sure that we we cover it. But let's move to the Papua New Guinea. Um, and so last week we touched about the the death um, of a nineteen year old woman from domestic violence. And so this week we we've seen um, a lot of developments from then. So why don't you uh, Leah tell me about what kind of has developed from that? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, thanks uh, for that, yes. So, Jenlyn um, uh, uh, Kennedy, I mean, uh, she's in mean, terrible tragedy um, but she's actually sort of become a catalyst in a way. Uh, there have been many, many, many cases like this over the years, but somehow because she was a young, uh, very beautiful young lady, um, she um, was a mother of two and so on, and it sort of seemed to galvanize the nation, you know, uh, thinking that we can't have this happening anymore. And so there were massive um, uh, protests, um, or, or rather, there were peaceful demonstrations, and where most people dressed in Black to to mark this tragedy last Thursday, um, and uh, there have uh, been a number of uh, high-profile um, people in uh, Papua New Guinea have come out uh, publicly and said, you know, we have to change laws and that sort of thing, um, and so there's tremendous uh, movement uh, for 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 change, and uh, a lot of commentators are saying perhaps this is it this is the real breakthrough mm-hmm. um, and and there will be changes there will be, you know there will be differences. but I you know the process of this has been uh, a lot of um, reports around the whole issue and there's a research um, Fiona uh, Dr. Fiona Hagurada from the uh, uh, National Research Institute and she's also an advocate uh, and been an advocate for a number of years about um, um, uh, gender-based violence mm-hmm. and she came out with research and it was rather extraordinary and rather frightening, as as she sort of said as well, that uh, she found that uh, 56% of women aged 15 to 49 in Papua New Guinea have experienced physical violence around the age of 15 or Mm -hmm. thereabouts, and 28% have experienced sexual violence. Uh, And also she found in her research that uh, not what we'd expect but um, the women that have been exper- experienced this violence most of all are those in um, educated families, um, and so their partners um, well educated and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So she found that particularly quite quite a shocking result of her yeah. research.
0: Mm, I think it, I mean it's a big it's a big complicated question. I, I think the way violence permeates, and and particularly uh, it's it's there's no one solution to it really. Um, yeah, and so finally for today, um, I thought we'd end with talking about you recently had a YouTube webinar and a bit of a challenging um, webinar um, with a senior Indonesia government official uh, about uh, free access for journalists in West Papua. So what was that about? Oh, yes, yes.
1: Well, that was that was <laughs> really quite interesting. Um, so this was organized by a um, newspaper in um, in West Papua, um, a Papua newspaper newspaper, um, uh, called um, uh, juby a tableau juby Uh, And they've been lately, as a result of the um, COVID-19, you know, sort of crisis, they've actually been organising a few of these uh, webinars and having uh, people together. This was the first one they actually did in English, Mm. and they invited me to speak. And I thought I was actually just going to be speaking for you know a group of uh, journalists, and we were sort of talking about like-minded sort of um, ideas and that sort of thing. But they got a high-powered foreign affairs, in fact, head of the European division, but he's actually. Um, one who's been responsible for uh, giving visas, which is very mm-hmm. rare, for, uh, in fact, uh, for journalists uh, going to um, West Papua. And so we had a very divergent uh, view of yeah. what was happening. He said, oh, no, it's, it's very easy, you can just go to go to West Papua, but it, that's not the experience. It is simply not the experience right. that so journalists what, have so found. They've only allowed, he, he came up with some statistics, um, I think it's sort of 55, I think it was, that he said that they've been allowed, since uh, President Wendell, Announced a new policy of uh, uh, relaxed uh, approach for journalists to get into mm. West Papua. Uh, but in fact, none of those come from Australia and oh, right. Senate, except uh, or the Pacific, except um, in 2015 when the policy was announced. We had a Māori television team and also RNZ team mm. went there uh, and did some good stories. And uh, and not only on human rights, they actually sort of did some really uh, broad coverage and so on as well, yeah. which shows what can be done if journalists are. Actually allowed uh, with entry, but there haven't been since. Mm-hmm. And it seems that what they're doing is allowing journalists from far afield who don't have a lot of background on right. and can't really influence, mm-hmm. um, you know, views within yeah. the Pacific. It's, it's, Unfortunately, because it's um, yes. of
0: timing, it's such, such a huge, I'm so interested to hear more about it. It's just such a huge and yeah. in, interesting thing of like what is happening with West Papua and then the relationship with Indonesia. Um, but because of timing, we don't have that space for it today. But you can definitely read more about it on the um, Asia Pacific report um, on the Pacific Media uh, Center. Um, And, yeah, definitely thank you for coming in today, David. Um, And that, yeah, that is all for uh, Southern Cross. We'll be back next week with Shree. And um, we'll continue talking about uh, Shree is working on a piece on the Earth Journalism Network Pacific Project. Um, So that is all for today. That was the Southern Cross.